Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Once that first lockdown was starting to bite, people started using a term I hadn't heard them use to describe the government in ever, which was we. We're doing, so how's the government doing? We're doing really well. And there was this moment where government had stopped being over there and I think it had started being all of us. Hello, good people of pods. It's Catherine Murphy. Welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. I'm delighted this week that I'm with my friend and, well, I don't know, would I call you a collaborator? It sounds a bit sort of McCarthy-esque or something, Peter. I don't know. Anyway, I am with my friend and uh, colleague. No, it's not colleague. What's the word? Partner in crime. Partner in crime. That'll do. That'll. That's probably it. Peter Lewis, who runs Essential Media. Now, Peter and I collaborate on the, well, it's been weekly during COVID, but a generally fortnightly essential poll. Obviously, Peter's organisation conducts the poll and runs it. And uh, Peter and I talk about questions, what what things we want to put into the field and, and what news lines, I suppose, we want to generate through that whole exercise. But if you're a politics watcher and a close one, you will have observed already that this week we relaunched the poll after a period of hibernation. <laughs> we didn't hibernate the poll entirely. We've been polling consistently throughout the COVID crisis, but what we hit pause on after the last federal election was primary votes and two-party preferred votes. And in this conversation, we're going to get into why we did that, why we just hit pause on that whole business for a period of time, where we've landed in terms of tweaking and adjusting the poll and how we're going to report this information with you in future. So that's why Peter's with us. So thanks for joining us, mate. So let's start with the obvious, I think, which is why don't we tell people listening why we felt things needed to change? That's a really good question. I remember sitting in your little studio down in Parliament a couple of weeks after the election in what could only be described as a little bit of a state of trauma, having watched what seemed like an inevitable change of government not happen and recognised that the polling had not only provided I guess, a false prognosis, if that's what polls do, but more importantly had become tied up 
in what had been an epic failure of <laughs> at least my progressive political movement, our progressive political movement, to think clearly. I, I saw it as an intelligence failure. And I think you and I spoke at the time that it wasn't just the numbers, it was about the way the numbers were used and how we turned polling into a de facto political scoreboard that almost abrogated our responsibility to think think deeply about issues. Did it matter? We're ahead 52-48. We don't really need to think through who's disengaged. And I, I think it really... I remember that day that I came down there, we'd been talking to a group of progressive leaders just down the road and everyone was just, how did this happen as if we'd been reading a version of reality that had been almost a fantasy of our own making? And again, the polls weren't to blame for that, but they created an excuse not to dig deeper and not to think deeper in in the way politics works. So... Out of that came, as you said, a period of reflection over 12 months where we've looked not just at the way we put our polling together, but also the way we report it. So yeah. to, to your hibernation analogy, we're determined to build back better, not to snap back to what we had before. And mm, so exactly. I think this week is the first bit of that build back better process. Yeah. And I don't want to absolve myself and my colleagues of responsibility for the way polls were reported, and we'll we'll get into that as we mm. as we have the conversation. But let's stick with what we've done just for a minute. So, mm. explain to the folks uh, how you've what's changed in the poll, Peter. What is what's different? Okay, so there's four big changes. Two of them, I'd say, are technical, and two of them are more let's call it methodological. So the technical ones are that. We've reviewed the way that we allocate preferences. So traditionally preference flows when you calculate a two-party preferred, follow the flow from the previous election. There was obviously a problem last time because One Nation in 2016, if you remember, preferenced against sitting MPs. So we aggregated that and just flowed the preferences. Of course, in 2019, they preference for the coalition. So rather than sticking to the previous formula, given the skittish nature of some preference flows, we're now asking people to allocate a preference if they can, and it's only when they can't that we'll go back to the previous election. So that's kind of hygiene. The second thing is that we're, we sample. So we get a 1,000 and we break down gender, age, so that we've got a broad cross-section that reflects ABS, there were such big regional differences that we're putting greater weighting now on getting the right mix of different regions and different states as well. So they're the two technical means that we might be a little bit more confident in the way the data that we collect reflects the Australian public. Having said that, and just to go back, the polls were still on the outer edges of margin error, as you and I often say, 3% margin of error, so why do we get so excited anyway? It was just that in 2010, 2013 and 2016, the polls had kind of, kind of been spot on, so they'd created this almost mystical predictive value. Yes. So yeah. that aside, we've tried to clean up the way that we collect it. But the two more profound things, which is really around the Build Back Better, are these. Firstly, I think one insight that we shared was when we look back over the polls from 2019, 
even a week out, we had about 7% of voters undeclared. And we, as all pollsters do around the world, take them out of the sample so that we can get out a number that adds up to 100. And that makes sense in a country with voluntary voting because they're unlikely to turn up if they can't see how they're going to vote. But in Australia, where voting is compulsory, there is a concern that what we're doing is disenfranchising the disengaged. So, what we've determined to do, and I think there's other pollsters around the place starting to look at it too, is leave those in. So we're calling it 2PP+, plus, which means we've got, for people that can give us an indication of how they're voting, we work out those preference flows. And so we've got an allocation of the two major parties, but then there is still an allocation that we set aside for people who don't, who can't even tell yeah. us who they who, might who vote for, even though they're going exactly. to vote. Yeah. So that's about 8%. So we, we, we ran the model and we went through it in this week's Guardian. And you know, what's interesting is even today, it's been all, you know, we've looked back on the numbers over the last six months it deviates between about 6 and 8%, up to 9%, 10% on people that can't declare. So we end up with a number that, you know, our 2PP plus has three numbers. It's got um, preference flow to Labor, preference flow to Coalition and the undecided. So it's a different form. It means that we're never going to be saying, you know, in the old world where 50% plus wins you, we're never going to be in that position some might say that's a bit of a cop out. I say that actually forces us not to go into the world of prediction. Well, exactly. It's not. It's actually not a cop out. It's it's foregrounding something, and this is where we can digress slightly into reporting what we failed to do in the past. Both pollsters and reporters, even you know, even careful ones, and obviously you guys are careful pollsters, and I regard myself as a careful reporter. The thing is, it's it's sort of this combination of of, of factors, as you said. Polls in Australia are very well regarded because political polls have been shown to be accurate over many, many election cycles. So again, this sort of builds up this sort of predictive capacity around the data. So that's that's one factor. Then, as you say, bizarrely, really, in retrospect, we've been screening out a whole category of voters who, in fact, are the category of voters who decide elections the people who sit on the fence and sit on the fence, many of them right up until the day where they walk into Mm. the polling booth and cast a vote. Mm. So what we failed to do, certainly me as a reporter, even though I don't think I've kind of done a total race call (laughs) kind of lowest common denominator reportage of polls, but what, what I have failed to do as a reporter is put in front of people that element of doubt. Now, you mm. and I did a, a Zoom at the start of the week with some peeps, and I was sort of describing it this way, right? Like, I always, in my reporting of polls, say the Guardian Essential polls margin of error is plus or minus 3%. And that's kind of, it's it's kind of a code. It, it, it's a conversation in code. You're telling the reader, look, this is broadly right up to this margin, right? But a lot of, I think a lot of people who don't follow politics closely, who don't follow the intricacies of polls would have no idea what that means. Mm. So It almost becomes like the health warning or the privacy policy that's there, but you never actually appreciate it. It's the PDS you never read or, you know, (laughs) or right? So this way, 2PP plus foregrounds doubt more extensively. But in your reporting, it says, look, on current trends, you know, Labor is X percent, 
the coalition is X percent and there is a proportion, as you say, sort of historically mm-hmm. in the trend we've looked at over the last six months between, say, six and eight percent of voters in a sample who are genuinely undecided. And so that's a way of of telling the reader or telling the consumer that, look, this is this is how it looks on what we can know and and here's the stuff that we don't know, which mm-hmm. I think is important. It's it sort of makes the whole kind of business of it more honest. I, I, and I reflect on how that last week of the last federal election would have played out both in the reporting and the conduct by the teams. If the story had been in the latest polls, Labor has 47% support, Coalition 45 with 8% undecided leading to election day, it would have placed a lot more focus on the choices and the way that campaigns were targeting those disengaged voters rather than saying Bill Shorten's ahead 55-49 on the eve of the election leading the way to a likely Labor victory or a certain Mm. Labor victory as I, I, I suspect some people saw. So it does change it and it does encourage doubt, which leads to the second change we're doing as well, Catherine, which I didn't get to, which is we're not going to be reporting poll by poll. We're going to bunch it up into, yeah, quarterly. So our idea is that we'll collect the data. We're running fortnightly polls again now. So every six weeks, we'll offer a rear view mirror view of where the polling's gone. I think that's important for two reasons. One, again, is it mitigates against the temptation for bad behaviour on the part of both commentators, reporters and politicians to try to ascribe surplus meaning to any one single poll movement. It will allow, if, if there is a trend over two or three weeks, you can start saying something's going yep. on. Um, but it also encourages to think about statistical movements from poll to poll not being bad polling. And I, I know a lot of the hardcore cephologists have been really critical of the public polls for all being within this single band. So I think that bounciness isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, it's sort of interesting uh, that that you've sort of referred to it indirectly there, that kind of concept of herding in the polls, that there's been a discussion about whether or not the polls uh, prior to the last election were all too similar, like eerily similar within a point or two of one another. So there weren't these kind of mad outlier you know, kind, of, mm. kind of polls, which we would sort of at one level congratulate ourselves upon. Oh, isn't that wonderful that we've sort of hadn't got one of those kind of one in 15 polls that's an absolute kind of noisy belter, right? Mm. What do you think about that herding argument? Because you yeah. were engaged on that in the discussion we did earlier in the week. Well, we've got to be careful because it's really accusing polling companies of fraud. And I'm not, I, I can hand on heart say that we put out what we found every time. I think there are issues with some of the polling methodologies where they, they use the trend lines from other polls as an anchor point. I think particularly the robo polls sometimes do that because they're not sampling the population. They're just getting what they can and then running filters to weight it up. That said, there is, I think, the pressure to ascribe meaning to movements just created a climate where rogues were seen as bad, not seen as normal. And yeah. so I think a rogue in a in a in a six week or a twelve week six poll set can exist a lot more comfortably than me sending you a poll on a Monday night saying, well, we've had a 5% shift to Labor, what are you going to write about that? Which, you know, you resist the temptation, but when it's there in black and white, it does create its own story. So let's go back a step. What we are trying to do with both these changes, giving a voice to the disengaged and 
only looking in the rearview mirror rather than trying to predict forward is also to say that polling can be really useful in reflecting public mood, but I guess we're saying it shouldn't be the headline. A, a margin of error move should never be on the front page of The Australian or it should never be leading The Guardian. There are, And, you know, you and I know, and we've been doing this over the last 12 months, there's much more interesting things to talk about in terms of public research anyway. And I, I, I hope we get to that in this discussion, just how rich it's been not worrying about yeah, the political yeah, scoreboard well, and almost how liberating it's been to think more deeply <laughs> and not be tied to this. I, you know, in our Zoom, I use the analogy, which I now think is quite apt, which is it's like giving up smoking, but still going to the pub. Um, and you, you, you've got to learn to enjoy yourself in a different way because the really bad stuff is out of the well, system. Well, and, you know, the stuff that'll kill you and the stuff that, that history shows has killed a number of prime ministers over the past <laughs> decade. See, I mean... Well, as we said, again, more more prime ministers removed by polling no, than by well, is, the people the over the last exactly. decade. Four to exactly. one. Exactly. Like, and this is this is why, you know, we started our conversation today with why do things need to change? Well, that's one of the elements. It's like kind of bizarre in the extreme that that polling has sort of come to the fore in the Australian system in the way that it has. You know, perhaps it hasn't in other countries because other countries' polling, political polling, is not seen as so reliable. Right. But in Australia, it's sort of it's there's sort of been this weird process of deification, both by the practitioners and by that I mean the politicians, right, who have used polls mm. against one another's another as weapons in terms of leadership changes, but also you know, the way it's been reported and the way it's sort of filtered through public discussion. Now I want to do I do want to get to how liberating it's been to be without it and confess that I never actually wanted it to return. And we, you and I had to have a big conversation about how, how we might be able to do that, which is kind of weird for me because I'm not I'm not a big advocate of cancel culture and here I am screeching, you know, let's cancel 2PP. But anyway, we'll get to that in a sec. I'm just conscious that some people who are listening to us will know, you know, it'll be abundantly clear what we're talking about. There will be some people who don't follow it closely for whom this might just be a lot to to take in in one conversation. Mm. So let's just do a quick stock take before we get on to the liberation of it not being there. Let's just say again, so what's going to happen with the poll is that we're going to have 2PP+, which is a measure of how the major parties are travelling and a foregrounded measure of the number of undecided voters in any given sample across a quarter. Uh, we've looked at preference flows. You guys have looked at preference flows. You've changed it from uh, using preference flows that 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 happened at the last federal election to a system where voters allocate their own preferences in the majority of circumstances and where they can't allocate their own preferences, then we use historical data to basically make a calculation about where those preferences go. The other thing is that we're only going to be reporting these numbers quarterly as opposed to weekly or fortnightly or whatever we've done in the past. And that enables us to look at a whole data series across three months and then make some conclusions about what's happened in in the polity in terms of their views of politics over that period of time. I mean, I hope that's clear. 
but I'm just trying to keep these technical things as clear as possible. So then let's get into the liberation period <laughs> that you and I have, have The Prague enjoyed. Spring of oh Poland. My, yes. it's been a time. Before the iron fist of exactly, 2PP comes back and crushes the exactly. soul. Um, look, yeah, it's been fascinating because uh, what we've been able to do with the poll, particularly in the first six months of this year, uh, has has been to sort of accumulate this rich series of um, of public se- or like a, a a sort of a what would you call it a tracking of of public sentiment. Yeah, it's been a tracking of sentiment in terms of concern about the virus, expectation that individuals will be personally affected, but also that the other tracks have been government performance, mm. both federal and state, and also some of the trust measures. And just to be clear, we would have been doing those probably even if we were polling 2PP, but I think it's more we would have it would have been harder to focus on the stories we got. So let's talk about satisfaction in the performance of government. Mm. It's been really high. Mm. You know, up in the 70s, even where where things are falling apart a bit in Victoria now, it's still 50% plus approval of the way government's handling the issue. Morrison and the feds are up in the 60s. We both looked at that week on week and saw it mm. rising even as things got worse and said our institutions are holding up and it's changing the way people are thinking about government, which was a really, I think, interesting and anchoring insight into the way that not just the public response to the virus has played out, but also the political context and the way the government's played it, unifying, the way the opposition's played Mm. it, um, trying to be as constructive as possible. And then it's only now when we're looking back on the 2PP that we're saying people are cheering for the government, but it actually hasn't had much of an impact on their voting Mm. intention, which again makes total sense Mm. because... We're not in an election cycle. We're in the middle of the most profound crisis our nation's faced since World exactly. War II. So yeah, exactly, and it's sort of the the benefit of that is is just a thing in itself, right? We've had this every week, more or less. We've asked the same questions or variants of the same questions, so that we can mm-hmm. track where sentiment has gone. We've sort of we went through this kind of setting aside trust for a minute, just just thinking about mm. sentiment about COVID. We sort of started with this polling exercise where quite a large proportion of the sample, it was like it was 30% or so from memory, started thinking that it was began at the at the beginning of this crisis thinking, oh look, it's just the flu, it's a beat up. You know, there's nothing much to this thing. It's all a bit of an overreaction. And we've watched that dilute over time. And then, as you say, we've watched this sort of modest renaissance of trust. People are coming back. People are looking for their governments to do things in the middle of a crisis. You know, like it's sort of an interesting counterfactual, Peter, isn't it? Like what would an American be thinking right now? Would an American be thinking God, I wish my government would do something. Like they probably, what would be the point of thinking that, Mm. right? But in Australia, it's sort of, it's funny because you and I obviously, because we're interested in trust and we're interested in the health of the polity, have been watching for, again, for quite a long period of time, trust go down in Australia in institutions, right, because of the revolving door of prime ministers, because Mm. of the hyper-partisanship, We've seen trust go down, right? And willful destruction of institutional exactly. trust. 
and then we've seen it go. And it's been rebuilt. You know, up again, which has been really interesting. It sort of indicates that Australians are resilient. That that and and hopeful, <laughs> and hopeful. Well, that our institutions are resilient as well, and I, you know, we, we were also running some online focus groups in those first months. And what I got really interesting once that first lockdown was starting to bite, people started using a term I hadn't heard them use to describe the government in ever, which was we. Mm. We're doing so. How's the government doing? We're doing really well. And there was this moment where government had stopped being over there and I think it had started being all of us. And I don't, I suspect that we're moving past that yeah. as things get yeah. messier. Yeah, feels like. But it was a really in- interesting yeah. insight in that first bit because I think our institutions held up and we all felt well about, good about ourselves and that whoever was leading, Liberal Coalition, sorry, Coalition Labor, state or federal was benefiting from that in terms of their yeah, support. Yeah, there was this sort of partisan blindness in approval, yeah. I think the second wave, and we've got to do a bit more work on this, I think the second wave is probably knocking the stuffing out of that a little bit. But again, support for the Victorian government, it was in the 70s, it's still 50% Yeah, which, plus. Is, which um, is kind of amazing. And some of this support crosses partisan lines and it, I think that's been really yeah. interesting because that hyper-partisan that if you if you vote one way, you've got to hate what's going on and if you vote the other way, you've got to love it, is sort of been broken down yeah, a little which bit. Yeah, which is good. I mean, that's, that's actually a constructive development. There's also, I agree, because we've sort of seen this plateauing in, um, in approval for certainly for Morrison and over the last poll, uh, the, the one before this one, mm. we saw um, uh, approval start to come down slightly for for Morrison, for Gladys Berejiklian in New South mm. Wales and for Daniel Andrews, which obviously, as you say, reflects events, right? We're in the middle of a second wave. Uh, things look very, very difficult indeed in Victoria at the moment. Uh, things are looking a bit more worrying in New South Wales too. So mm. uh, obviously people will respond to events. People's perceptions of how their governments are travelling will be informed by events. I do think, though, there's been a theme in this conversation of trying to be truthful and, and trying to anchor really important discussions rather than seeing them go off in all different kind of unproductive directions, right? Like, I think the great thing about this data series, if politicians can sort of hold their nerve in this crisis and think, is that it shows them if they're competent, if they don't turn on one another for cheap thrills, if they work together sort of collaboratively and constructively in a crisis, they will be rewarded for doing it. And so it's sort of like... I don't know. I hope myself, just as a citizen, that there's there's a bit of a cautionary tale here with this data as we get to this next point in the crisis, which is obviously very serious, right? And where we've already seen this week, we've seen sort of Commonwealth blaming Victoria, Victoria sort of blaming the Commonwealth. We've seen a fraying in this kind of collaboration that's characterised the opening months of the crisis. It's sort of like my gut feeling informed by this work we've been doing, informed by this research that we've been doing, is if they, if if politics sort of reverts to the lowest common denominator, then people will be really punished for that, I think, because it's sort of like daring to hope, right? I would describe what we've seen in the sentiment data, right, as, as people daring to hope that, that governments are competent, that institutions can rise to the challenge 
and people are rewarding them for that. If they then sort of, you know, start squabbling and carrying on like pork chops, I, I don't know. I reckon people will have very, very low tolerance for that. Yeah. Look, I think the other thing that I've seen is that government success isn't a zero-sum game. So even while Morrison's approvals were high and higher than Albo's, it wasn't that one had to fall for the other to rise. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's been, I think, the key insight that this is such a big thing that people just – like I think Victoria opposition has played a more partisan game. I think New South Wales opposition was tempted early but have kind of pulled back. But I think the oppositions that do well are also changing the way that they approach their business. Yeah, yeah, which is really fascinating. Anyway, sadly, we've sort of come to the end of time that we can reasonably expect people to devote to our ramblings. Anyway, thank you very much, Peter, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. If you want to sort of go back in the in the sands of time, folks, if you've enjoyed this conversation, you found it enlightening, you might want to track down to uh, track back to Peter, Peter and my conversation just after the election and relive his trauma and my mass confusion and, uh, and compare that with where we've ended up. Anyway, that's too tragic in the extreme. But anyway, as always, thank you for listening. We appreciate it. Keep an eye on the polling as we report it fortnightly and, and quarterly. And I look forward to getting some really interesting insights out of these trends. And, and pulling all kinds of bits and pieces out of the numbers that we haven't been able to do when we've been on fortnightly rotations. Can we also um, give up our fortnightly little chats we have on Zoom? Oh, of course. Yeah, 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 of course. Absolutely. And these little virtual town halls um, on the Australia at Home platform, which Guardian Australia has really generously sort of supported through the lockdown. And Murph and I get, we call it the geek fest and we get <laughs> down into the weeds. So if people want to go deeper, we'd love to have you along. Yeah, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. Should have done that. Yeah. Come and, come and join these conversations. They are really fun. They've sort of been a good uh, sanity valve for us and I hope for others through a really difficult time. So it's very easy to track down. If you follow either Peter or I on social media, you'll be able to follow links to those things. Uh, thank you, as always, to Miles Martignoni, the executive producer of the show. Thank you to Hannah Izzard for cutting the show, as she often does. You know the drill. Tell your friends, all of that sort of stuff. Share the pod. We'll be back with you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 